Good Wednesday. This is Ozarks at Large for March 8, 2023, International Women's Day. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. For working parents, finding a place you can trust your child to stay while you're away at work can be exhausting. We've all heard anecdotal stories about folks trying to find childcare for their little ones so they could get back into the office and being either unable to find childcare or at least find childcare they can afford. So I did what any good reporter does and walked right next door to my coworker who shares a wall with me, KUAF's underwriting director and the most recent father in the building, Ryan Versi. Well, I'm happy to make this process easy for you because the process of finding childcare is simply not. <laughs> so talk a little bit about what was the process like to where did you even know how to start looking? I mean, were you doing Google searches? Somewhere between the Google searches and the word of mouth. Yeah. That, so we just kind of compiled a list. Like uh, my wife literally makes lists for everything. This should come as no surprise, but when it comes to finding a place to send your kid for childcare, there's a website for that. I am Sarah Moskoff. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Winnie, a childcare marketplace across the United States. Sarah launched Winnie in 2016 because she was having trouble finding childcare for her own kids. At the time, you know, I had this kind of hypothesis that, you know, there was daycare and preschool options, but they were really hard to find. And kind of when we dug into the the problem, we found that lots of daycares and preschools aren't listed online at all. Like they have no Google listing, no web page. They're just impossible to find on the internet. We're kind of looking at this time frame between, you know, yellow pages have, have gone, they're a thing of the past, and the internet is is fully fledged, but there's kind of this this space in between the two where probably some of these organizations kind of fell through the cracks, right? Childcare providers are one of the last <laughs> industries to really adopt the internet. And COVID has has definitely helped things um, in terms of childcare providers getting online. And certainly, like, Winnie was sort of in the right place at the right time. The information that Winnie uses to populate their page of providers comes from state licensing databases. In Arkansas, the person in charge of that process is Tanya Williams, the director at the Division of Child Care and Early Childhood Education at the Department of Human Services. We have the responsibility for child care licensing, which means that we license programs, could be a center or a family child care home, to keep five or more unrelated children in the state of Arkansas for more than 10 hours a week. The Division of Child Care and Early Childhood Education does a lot of work from approving and monitoring these facilities, coordinating grants that help provide funding to help pay for child care services, a summer feeding program, and much more. And that is, in a nutshell, uh, <laughs> <I'll> do. <laughs> It sounds like you're never running out of things to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there, is, there is a lot, but it, it's really all, if you think about it, you know, if you think about a child or a family, it's really all about the resources, the, the baseline of a quality or a safe place for a child, and then all the resources to wrap around that, if you think about it that way. So licensing databases, like the one Tanya supervises, is the place where Winnie gets their information. And then we work with the providers themselves to get all their information on Winnie. So we make it really simple for them to claim and update their page so that they don't have to be, you know, 
experts in putting up a website to have a great page on Winnie with detailed information. And then parents can come on to Winnie.com and they can search by city or zip code, and then they can filter by the criteria that they care about. So maybe they want a Spanish speaking provider, or maybe they want, you know, somewhere that takes infants. That's all the stuff they can sort by on Winnie. Making a list of places to consider is a solid first step. Ryan says between word of mouth and the internet, they had their preferred choice in mind, but had some backups they wanted to check in with just to make sure. We called around several other places. A lot of places simply ghosted us. They either stopped responding, never responded, or just, you know, they simply weren't, they didn't have a a spot available. Yeah. So at that point, we were just kind of like, okay, well, I mean, we can only choose the places that we've seen, and we've seen maybe two of two or three places total. This is certainly a concern I've heard from other parents on the hunt for providers. They're hard to get a hold of, and even if you do get a hold of them, they're booked up for the next, I don't know, decade or so. Sarah says, on the whole, that's not always true. Most providers are actually not running at capacity all the time. Um, or not even close to capacity. And this also eats into their profits because they have the same fixed costs to run their business, whether they have you know, one child in their program or all their spaces filled. And so they really do need to run at capacity, which means if they have a part-time spot, they have to fill the remainder of that spot with another child. Um, and so this is where a marketplace like Winnie can be really helpful in kind of filling that excess capacity, whether it's a full-time spot or just the after-school program for these hours on these days. In some states, the databases that Winnie pulls from to populate their website is not searchable by the public. But in Arkansas, there is a public-facing search engine that can be used to find child care services and filter your search. If you're looking for a provider who is, say, open on weekends, provides transportation, or you're looking for a specific age range, the Arkansas Department of Human Services offers a rather robust website. Tanya Williams again. In that search engine, it also has the quality of that program. So there are stars. So we now have a six-star system. So it's levels one through six, or better beginning star level one through six. Six is the highest level of quality. Um, Really, three through six, Anything at three through six would be considered high quality in the country. Tanya says one of the main indicators of the Better Beginnings star ratings is on the child to worker ratio. So in Arkansas for infant care, it's one to five. The national high quality standards would recommend one to three or one to four. So for just general licensing, that's pretty good. For a facility to earn five or six stars, that ratio would be one to four or one to three for infants, which is classified as birth to 18 months. The older the child gets, the higher the ratio can be. 18 to 36 months, which would be three-year-olds. So one and a half to three would be one to eight. So now that you have a better understanding of where to find a place... How much are you going to have to pay to put a kid in childcare? This sort of data is not explicitly collected by the state of Arkansas, and sources do tend to vary, 
But the average monthly cost of childcare in Arkansas ranges from about $550 to more than $1,000. According to data from U.S. News and World Report from 2022, Arkansas ranks as the eighth most affordable state for a single parent as measured by what share of income would be spent on full-time, center-based care for a four-year-old. Oddly specific data is fascinating. Now, obviously, providers are the ones who set the price for their services, but... We at the state, because we pay for families who meet certain income criteria and work requirements, we use the rates that providers set. We look across the state in geographical areas and look at the rates and determine the rate for that area. We're required through that child care development block grant to pay at least at the 75th percentile. We pay much higher than that. We pay closer to the 100th percentile because we think it's important not just to pay for child care, but to pay for high quality child care. What advice would you give to new parents who were looking for child care right now? One, save up. Two, start looking immediately. Three, tour the facilities. I can't stress that part enough. You're basically going to want to, um, you know, make sure that it's a safe environment the same way you would your own living room. Four, save up. <laughs> Five, save up. Six, <laughs> save up. Seven, save up. Eight, save up. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Later this hour, new poetry from Jerry Sloan. He has several poems in the new collection, Wild Muse, Ozarks Nature Poetry from Corner Post Press. Jerry and two other Arkansas poets included in the book will read Friday night at Pearls in Fayetteville, and he'll read for us later this hour. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being, offering a variety of amenities and living options, including apartments, cottages, and village homes. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. A bill that would have regulated the way libraries handle challenged books failed in the Arkansas House Judiciary Committee yesterday. Josie Lenora with our partner station KUAR has more. Committee members' questions focused on funding sources, along with any unforeseen outcomes the bill could create. Many lawmakers voiced their concern that raising minimum teacher salaries to $50,000 could harm rural districts, which may not have the budgets to fund the requirement. Legislators questioned how smaller districts would also be able to pay support staff and maternity leave after the raises go into effect. Republican Representative Keith Brooks, the bill's primary co-sponsor in the House, said he's confident it can be funded. So you've got the funding matrix that's over here. That funding matrix has not changed. The LEARNS bill creates the additional pot of funding to support to bring up to the salary levels that are prescribed as a minimum. Democratic Representative Denise Gardner asked Brooks if private schools that receive public money are allowed to turn away disabled students. Would a private school then be able to refuse a student because of their disability? Based upon our current uh, current law, private schools have the opportunity to uh, evaluate the student and to make a decision based upon their capability of serving that student. Other questions focused on the bill's requirement for high schoolers to volunteer for 75 hours in order to graduate. Lawmakers also asked questions about the option for public schools to be taken over by charter systems and the bill's ban on critical race theory. Josie Lenora, KUAR News. 
An effort to roll back Arkansas's near-total ban on abortion failed in the state legislature yesterday. Members of the House Public Health, Welfare and Labor Committee rejected House Bill 1301, which would allow for abortions in cases of fetal abnormalities incompatible with life. The bill's sponsor, Fayetteville Democratic Representative Nicole Clowney, said those problems are typically diagnosed at around 20 weeks into pregnancy. Several members of the public spoke both for and against the bill. Committee members rejected it on a voice vote. Earlier this week, a bill passed in the Arkansas legislature that would impact citizen-initiated constitutional amendments. House Bill 1419 would require that a citizen-initiated constitutional amendment collect signatures from 50 of the state's 75 counties. Republican Senator Jim Dotson is a sponsor of the bill and says the Constitution currently requires signatures from at least 15 counties. This would make it to where it's at least 50. The, uh, the Constitution sets the floor at at least, and so like we do with just about anything else, we can make laws uh, regarding other requirements and things like that. In both the 2020 and the 2022 election, the Arkansas legislature referred amendments to be voted on that would alter the way citizen-initiated constitutional amendments could make it onto the ballot. In 2020, Arkansas Issue 3 proposed requiring signatures from 45 counties. That amendment was voted no, 56 to 44 percent. In 2022, Arkansas Issue 2 proposed that amendments would need to be approved by a supermajority of voters. That amendment also failed, this time by a vote of nearly 60 to 40 percent. Bonnie Miller is the president of the League of Women Voters in Arkansas and says this is the latest attempt of the legislature to dismantle direct democracy in Arkansas. And it is 100 percent about keeping voters from using this avenue to pass laws and amendments because in the past they didn't like it when voters used ballot measures to create term limits for them, to establish ethics rules that they have to follow, and to take some of the money out of politics. So now they're just trying to find another way to rig elections in their favor so we can't hold them accountable. Miller says citizen-initiated amendments in direct democracy in Arkansas have bipartisan support. People like the initiative and referenda process. That is just, that's a fact. And so legislators just blatantly ignoring that is extremely, extremely dangerous. This is not about protecting elections in any way. This is not about protecting the process. That is just patently false. That is ridiculous messaging. House Bill 1419 passed both chambers of the legislature and is headed to the governor's desk for the governor's signature. A giant lacewing insect found clinging to the exterior of a Fayetteville Walmart store in 2012, collected and stored by a University of Arkansas doctoral student at the time, is suddenly making headline news. That student, Michael Scavarla, today a Ph.D. entomologist and director of the Insect Identification Lab at Penn State University, identified the lacewing eight years later in 2020, the first recorded find in eastern North America in over 50 years. With Arkansas-based Mississippi State Research entomologist Ray Fisher, Scavarla authored an article about their rediscovery last December in the Proceedings of the Entomological Society of Washington. Penn State issued a media release about the article last month, and that story went viral. I think it's worth pointing out a clarification here where I think a lot of people are taking the rediscovery angle of this was an extinct species that was brought back and hey, I think it's really cool. I'm so excited we got to find this thing and document it. But Fisher says giant lacewings are actually common to the western U.S. 
collectively called moth lace wings or giant lace wings, whatever you prefer. The family name is Ithonidae, and, and there's about 60 species worldwide. And that entire lineage had its origin in the Jurassic period. So, for example, so did birds. Birds originated in the Jurassic period. The species is not from the Jurassic. Uh, this was taken from the research article we wrote, the science paper. Uh, and it's referring to the fact that the entire group, the larger group that this one species sits within, is thought to have originated during the Jurassic. Fisher welcomes national news coverage, but says reports framing their find as a dinosaur-era creature are misleading. The thing that, that we found is not from the Jurassic, uh, the larger lineages. So that's one thing. Another thing is the fact that it's quote-unquote rediscovered. It was rediscovered east of the Great Plains. So long ago, prior to 1940, uh, really, um, it was widespread, widespread across the continent. And then something in the 50s changed that and su- such that by 1960, in the eastern U.S., it's not there anymore. So we have rediscovered a specimen in the eastern U.S. Fisher and Scavarla speculate the species disappeared in the eastern U.S. due to forest fire suppression, the introduction of non-native predators, and food chain disruptions. Also, Giant lace wings are not really giant. They have a wingspan that measures fewer than two inches. I guess it's relative, right? Yes. As for how the lone giant lace wing showed up on a Walmart building in Arkansas, Fisher says it could have hitchhiked on a truck, was blown here by a windstorm, or is a rare survivor of an extinct eastern population. The specimen is now housed at Frost Entomological Museum at Penn State. And the Arkansas Razorback baseball team now 10-2 and after yesterday's 7-5 win over Army at Bomb Stadium. Up next, a three-game series in Fayetteville against Louisiana Tech. This is Ozarks at Large. Local post-countrypolitan artist Dylan Earl has new music to share. Last weekend, he held release shows for his third full-length album titled I Saw the Arkansas at Subiaco Abbey and Maxine's Live in Hot Springs. The release shows continue this weekend with a show Friday at Whitewater Tavern in Little Rock and a local release show Saturday night at Georgia's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville. When he recently stopped by the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio at KUAF to talk with Ozarks at Largest Timothy Dennis, Dylan said this record is an effort that is his favorite work to date. We recorded that whole record in uh, my high school auditorium down there in Subiaco. Yeah, courtesy of Mr. Roy Getz and, and, and of course, uh, the monks there. We went down there over the summer of 21, and while the students weren't there, so we were all able to kind of hole up for about four or five days. It's, it's always been one of my favorite rooms to hear music, and that was just from when I was a student there. They always brought in wonderful concerts that really impacted me. Mm. And I'd always thought, especially as I began to understand how good rooms can sound, I always would go back to that room in my mind. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's the Performing Arts Center down there. So I just it, it kind of— got a wild hair in my mind. I said, you know, what, what have we recorded in that room? And so uh, I you know, passed the idea by Mr. Getz down there, and, and he said, well, come on with it. And so we had access to the whole facility, which was wonderful. We had, um, you know, there's there's all kinds of great amps and everything. There. They have a, a great jazz ensemble that they've had since I was a student and well before that, and they still have it. So Catalina Club kit and 
you know, Ampeg bass rigs and, and, mm-hmm. and these, you know, Fender deluxe reverbs and whatnot. It's just not a whole lot of high schools have access to that. Right. So uh, it was nice to be able to, you know, use that equipment and, and obviously combine that with ours. And my buddy McKay, who who plays uh, Hamilton Belk, Hamilton McKay Belk, he's got a lot of names. Um, he plays Steel on the record, played Steel on Squirrel in the Garden as well, The my second LP. And uh, he drove every all of his recording gear down from Maine. He lives up in Maine with his wife and drove everything down here to Arkansas. And we holed up in there and kind of created that makeshift studio for, I guess, the four days. Yeah. So it was uh, it was a wonderful experience. We got the whole thing pretty much exactly how we wanted. Kind of got to sit on it for a while. And then a few months later, I went into Homestead recording, mm-hmm. Homestead Studio up here in Fayetteville, my buddy Eric Whithands. And we got in there and kind of put the finishing touches, redid right. a lot of the vocal takes and whatnot. My buddy Grady Drug came down from Springfield, mm-hmm. laid down some great guitars and did some wonderful vocal arrangements on it, kind of put all the finishing touches on it. And so had that record in the can, and Garhol Records has been here in Fayetteville for, for a good while now, kind of doing everything with Nick Shoulders and, and Jess Harp, and they got the Lost Teens, Chris Acker, and, and this awesome roster. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my peers and people I look up to, so it was uh, – it. You know, I've, I've courted other labels here and there across the years. You know, I've been touring now for close to getting getting in on a decade, you know, and, and, and it was I'm kind of blessed that a lot of things didn't work out because now <laughs> I was honored that Kurt and Nick wanted me to be on the label and mm-hmm. uh, we're interested in releasing this record. So it's been so awesome to be able to work with my buddies that know me, know who I am, know what I'm about, know what yeah. I'm trying to represent here at home, you know. Right. And so, you know, I've known Kurt for, for um, we went to college together, lived together and whatnot and I've known Nick for a long time in the scene so mm-hmm. yeah it's it's been like a total blessing in disguise almost uh, not to reference a song that will be <laughs> reworked and put on this new album but uh. Well, you mentioned that you had help uh, from Grady Drug. You also had help from a few other people on this record, right? Yes, yes. There's kind of the OG boys that have been there. First, Dick Darden, of course. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows Dickie D is Fayetteville's prodigal drummer. Um, <laughs> he's, he's, he's at any given time in about you know five or six bands, it seems like. Well, and, one night he could be playing country. The next night he could be playing punk. The next night, whatever. Right. Sometimes he does it all in the same night, which, right. is, which right. is wild. But Dick's been with me for a long, long time. He did the first LP that we did out at East Hall, New Country to Be. Uh, my buddy Will Eubanks recorded that um, out there with uh, Chris Moore at East Hall. And Dick was played drums on that. Chris Wood's been on bass forever and ever and ever as well. Mm-hmm. Chris is in so many daggum different bands. <laughs> so it's kind of the same thing. I mean, those guys are really, honestly, that's, that's, that's pound for pound, daggum best rhythm section in Northwest Arkansas, in my opinion the most versatile and probably perhaps one of the most experienced in playing together. You know, those guys are, they're so in the pocket together. You can stick them in any situation and, and they've got it. They've got all the best parts figured out. And, yeah. and you know, I mean, those guys, they're a metronome together. It's its incredible. And then also, you know, Lee Zadro. Lee Zadro has been there forever and ever. Yeah. And uh, he's toured with me forever. He's been on all the records. He's the key daddy around mm-hmm. here, you know. But yeah, he's uh, he's just always been a delight to have in the van. All those guys have been so much fun to tour with over over my career. 
I don't know. I'm just, I'm kind of wondering why, you know, why they hadn't gotten tired of me yet. So, <laughs> and I'm, I'm really, really honored. Those, those guys are willing to, to yeah. stick it out with me and ride around. And, and I think it really shows in this album. It's largely the way we recorded. It was very much so live in, in the instance of, you know, a lot of the guitars, um, all the drums and, and bass, of course, were done straight live, but it just feels like a live record more yeah. so than, than kind of a picked apart studio record. So yeah, it's yeah. Uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. Cause there ain't no feeling quite like those Helltown River Blues There's no telling how long they're They're gonna stick around So in the meantime we'll do our best to keep these four tires planted on Some dirt Pop a top or two I guess it couldn't hurt I'm gonna burn a split In the middle of the road well, and you also had some people helping you out on vocals too, right? Yes, yes. We had uh, Bonnie Montgomery and uh, uh, Mary Kimbrough, and uh, I've, I've known Mary just as long as I've known Eric. And she uh, she came and you know did a bunch of vocal takes, and we had Bonnie over. And, and her and Bonnie are on, honestly some of my absolute favorite vocalists of all time. And I, I don't think they'd really met each other, or known each other until that moment. So yeah. getting to see them really bond over being totally kick-ass singers yeah. was really neat, you know? Well, and, their voices uh, just blended so naturally together. Oh, my gosh, man. It was like, you know, me and me and Grady and Eric were in the control room just, like, trying to hold it together, like, just totally amazed, man. I don't know. You know, those those magic moments happen, and, and you can, you know, just being able to hear that happening in a room was incredible. So those two sang on it. Grady did a lot of uh, a lot of vocal arrangements with, with, with just himself there too. I, I think I, I did a, a little bit of background vocals. I can never really remember. <laughs> um, but th- those guys all stole the show. You know, m- yeah, Mary Kimbrough and Bonnie Montgomery and Grady Drug. Yeah, they they absolutely killed it. So it's it's so cool to to, to have them on this record, yeah. and uh, they're also singing on the next one too. So, oh. uh, if you had to pick a song, baby, like your favorite child on this record, what would it be? Usually, that's a lot harder. I think of a question to answer. This one would probably be the title track. I saw the Arkansas. It, it's really kind of my first real attempt at kind of digging up some of the the deeper parts of my own identity, mm-hmm. you know, and looking, you know, I guess myself and my own experiences have always been a bit of a muse, but this is really a whole lot more and a little bit, you know, I guess, to be honest, a little more therapeutic and trying to understand myself. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, you know, there's so much that happens in the subconscious, you know, in, in your dreams and, and, and such. And, and this is a little bit about that and kind of a, a repeat scene I see, but also really more so, you know, th- I feel like that's kind of almost cliche to be like, this is a song about a dream, you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's more so really thinking, well, why do I keep seeing that? Cause I, there's also a feeling that's attached to a certain place in my heart and trying to connect the two between my identity and my heart has been, mm-hmm. is kind of what I guess this song is a bit about. It ideally brings a listener right into that scene. Yeah. So, and, and sonically we achieved exactly what I wanted to exactly how I'd imagined, um, the song to sound. It was, uh, you know, a bit of like a, 
like a, a nod to an Arkansas church house documentary, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, what are the, what are the opening credits, you know, or something like that. So it, it, I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to t- take you to the little church house in your mind with a little old lady still, you know, thumbing through sheet music and such, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, it's, I think we achieved that. I'm really excited about it. So I'll ride and ride. release shows planned for this record uh, within the next week or so. What what have you got planned for them? On March 10th, we'll be down at uh, my favorite bar on planet Earth, my favorite venue on planet Earth, the Whitewater Tavern down there in Little Rock. That's March 10th. March 11th, we'll be up at George's here in Fayetteville. So at the March 10th and the March 11th shows, there's a market that's happening at 7 o'clock, and it's important for everybody to know if you're going to come to the show, you know, please show up early, show up at 7 and uh, there'll be a market from 7 to 9. Shows and music are going to start at 9 o'clock both nights. But so let's see if I can keep this straight now. March 10th down in Little Rock at the Whitewater Tavern, there will be Flake Baby Pastry. My buddy Carl Carbonell will be on both shows, so he'll be there. Mm-hmm. He's selling some prints of his artwork. He did the flyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll also have Smut Shop, and we'll also have my friend Megan Carson, who's going to be doing tintype photography. And you can look Ooh. through my socials and find the sign-up for that. And then there's also, in Little Rock only, there will be uh, Recycle Bikes for Kids. My friend Meg Golson is, is uh, a part of that, and uh, they'll be doing bike donations. Recycle Bikes is a great program. They, they take old, used, and, and, and you can also drop off a new bike if you'd like. Yeah. And they repair bikes and donate them for kids. Um, I think it's important for kids to get outside and get exercising, especially in the day and age of all these screens. Right. And then March 11th up here... Uh, in Fayetteville, we're going to have uh, Approximately Good by my friend Amber Eccleton. They did some merch designs for me, and they're going to have a lot of their artwork there. James Williams will also have some ceramic works there, which will be awesome. Carl will be back up there, and Carl is also going to be playing a set in the front room. Oh. And then Smut Shop and uh, Megan Carson doing Tintype. So, again, you can sign up for the Little Rock Night or the Fayetteville Night on the Tintype Photography. Find those links through my socials. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have to dig a little deep, but we can get you there. <laughs> and there's going to be some real fun set designs stuff going on it you know i wanted to throw something a little more special i want it to be mm-hmm. more of a party more of a function and not just say here's the show here's the songs here you go right because we put a lot of thought into all the merch on this and and the release and how we're doing everything so hopefully that'll show through got a lot of fun stuff on on the merch you know got i just got i'm releasing the record on chocolate 
It's gonna be a lot of fun. I've got Unlike chocolate. Edible chocolate? Well, it's it's in a chocolate bar, okay. but there's a download code in the box. Oh, okay. Yeah. So my friends up in Maine, they the boxes look great. It's a nice little collectible box with a with a homemade chocolate bar in there and a download code. Those will be there. All kinds of stuff, man. When you've you got know. beer too, right? Yes. Let's talk about the beer. Like I said, <laughs> this, this is, is the most interesting thing yeah. to me. <laughs> this is, it's been a wild, wild thing to plan, to be honest with you. And like I said, I think it's all coming together. We just kegged. I was down in Little Rock. It's a beer I made with Lost 40. An old friend of mine, Jerry Gorman's uh, one of the head brewers down there. And we had kind of talked a little bit about, you know, I'd been inspired. Paul Bear did a collaborative beer with them, and uh, I was a little inspired by that. And kind of jokingly had said something to Jerry, hey, let's do beer sometime. And then he actually hit me up about it, and, you know, and so we, we thought it up. And I wanted to create a beer. Uh, you know, I travel a lot, obviously, all around America, and I'm always looking for a good sessionable beer. I can't really mm-hmm. drink a whole lot of IPAs and stuff anymore. Yeah. I like to every once in a while, but but usually I'm just looking for something refreshing. Most of the time, something in the neighborhood of hams. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, and and I love my I love me some hams. Don't get me wrong, and and obviously some some born of born in the land of Arkansas rice Budweiser. <laughs> you know, but uh, I like to try to support a local brewer. You know, mm-hmm. wherever I go, and uh, I always try to find oh it's some oh, they have a lager or a pilsner, and then you. You know, you taste it. And you're like, this just tastes kind of like a watered down IPA. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I wanted, I wanted, I've always wanted to see what what a brewery could do with actually trying to achieve a real light beer. And I also love German pilsners and things like that. And yeah. I also equally get annoyed whenever I, I see someone say, oh, here's this American pilsner or this a pilsner or whatever, and it's just again just a watered down IPA. Right. So I think we achieve what we're looking for because it's it's like somewhere in between like a Heineken and a Bush Light. Okay. Yeah, somewhere in between that, maybe closer to the bush light realm. Yeah. But it just it rides so smooth. So the head on it, we were so excited because the head on it is really like a like a German style pilsner, yeah. but it really rides like an American light lager. Okay. So it's this wonderful hybrid. It doesn't taste anything like an IPA, which is my <laughs> my you know. There's plenty of great IPAs you can go get, you know. So it'll be on tap at uh, all the release shows. Um, it'll be on at Maxine's and Hot Springs, and then Whitewater and Georges, and then it's also going to be on tap at some my other favorite watering holes around the state. And I'll release a list of those through my socials and stuff like that. So if you'd like to check it out and find out where you can get you some Tours Light. So, you know, light. man, the jokes, yeah, the jokes just write themselves. I got to give credit to Jerry. He came up with that name and also got a shout out to Lost 40. They've all been so awesome at working this release with me. And they've, they've all been so creative and kind and fun and accommodating. And it's just been an absolute blast of experience, yeah. really. Dylan Earl speaking inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis. He'll have a release show Saturday at George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville, Doors at 7, with that aforementioned pre-show market starting at that time. There'll also be music in the front room of George's performed by Carl Carbonell and Yanked. There will also be performances from Jess Harp and Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires from the backstage at George's. You can find a whole lot more information about the show on Dylan Earl's Facebook or Instagram pages or at DylanEarl.com. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, presenting the Eureka Springs Blues Rock and Funk Festival, featuring Ray Wiley Hubbard and Marsha Ball, June 2nd at the Auditorium. Reserve seats on sale this Friday, March 10th at tickets.thundertix.com. During the pandemic, more people turned to nature and gardening as a refuge. But it was on TikTok where these novice planters found inspiration. Substance and structure, when I add soil down the road, the plants experience less shock. 
Just like people, plants can be shocked if forced into transition without preparation and care. That's TikTok's most popular gardener, Marcus Bridgewater, or Garden Marcus. The Houston-based gardener merges gardening techniques with mindfulness, and he's a guest lecturer at the University of the Ozarks in Clarksville Thursday. Bridgewater spoke with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth last week, and Daniel asked him if he'd been to Arkansas before. I have not been to Arkansas or to the Old Arts. Lots of uh, plant varieties and things. Is there anything you're kind of like interested in getting out and seeing in, in the Ozarks? Really, it's the trees to shrubs and the landscape itself. Everywhere is different, but is a combination of other places that I've been. So I like to see what the mix uh, translates into. So just everywhere has some uniqueness to it. And I, I look forward to appreciating what the Ozarks has to offer. Absolutely. And so kind of to start off, uh, I have to confess that I, I don't have a TikTok or anything. Uh, and so, okay. um, but you know, you got, you found a lot of success through social media and through TikTok uh, specifically. And, you know, for what you do, it's interesting because it seems kind of like, I guess, at odds with gardening, with self-care. So can you kind of explain, you know, how you put those two things together and started sharing your, your gardening online? The garden started first. And the garden started out of a need to try and find tools to help me manage the stress that was the everyday life. I thought TikTok was a calendar app. Uh, and when I was educated on what it actually was, I immediately saw its potential. But because I was a novice to social media, one of my former students came from college and suggested that I use TikTok to promote the concepts that are the underlying philosophy and foundation of my company, Choice Forward. The connection between the gardening and the social media was really established in that footprint, but the idea was already established before we ever took it to TikTok. Right. And then, you know, having done this for the past, it's been, what, like three three years or mm -hmm. so, having it on online, has that changed, you know, how you approach gardening or, or like your relationship with it in any way? You know, it's really impacted it in the way that I feel like I've got philodendron who've been seen by millions of people. So I'm like, oh, you're famous <laughs> <laughs> to the plant. I'll say that to the plant and be like, oh, you know, you've got more airtime than most people ever get. But outside of that, no, it's not changed my relationship with my plants at all. No. Yeah. And so can you go back and just kind of talk about, you know, how you started getting into gardening and why you were interested in plants in the first place? How did that start? I moved to Texas to work in a private preparatory and I bought my first house several months later. And as a housewarming gift from my oldest friend's mom, she owned a nursery in Florida, which is where I'm from. And as a housewarming gift, she gifted me exotic plants from her nursery. And it just so happens that the nursery was closing that same summer. So the plants that I got had so many layers of value to them. So when I got them home, I put them everywhere around the house, made the house look so beautiful. And within a couple months, the plants were dying. And I ended up losing more than half of them. 
and I was devastated. And I was desperate to figure out how could I keep the rest alive. And in the process of doing a lot of research and a lot of experimentation, going and buying hundreds of dying plants from local box stores and garden centers that were throwing their plants away, I started accumulating knowledge on plants. But what I was actually doing was fostering relationships with different forms of life. And it was because of those relationships that I realized, oh, I can't make anything grow, but I can foster environments where things want to grow. And that concept really broadened my understanding of how to nurture relationships. And it made me a better teacher, a better friend, a better son, a better human being. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that, you know, it's easy to apply some of those concepts to nature, to plants, to tending a garden? Why does that work? I think that an underlying true reason why it works is because life repeats itself on every scale. Mm -hmm. And our plant cousins are intricately related to us. And so the idea of growth, right, what we give out, they take in, and what they give out, we take in. So there's a relationship here. And that relationship has existed forever, right? And so when we look at that relationship, we can see we've been growing together for a long time. And they, our plant cousins, have always been focused on growth. We humanity are often distracted. I feel really blessed to be almost a translator to remind people, oh, wait, we're all speaking, maybe slightly different languages, but we're all speaking to attempt to communicate better. Do you still get uh, surprised by by plants when you're gardening? Like, do you have things that stump you still or or take you by surprise? All the time. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> All the time. Even right now, I got a ZZ plant propagation that I I made four of them. I got three to be successful. And then of the three, only one has made it long-term successful. Um, and again, there was some experimenting going on. So the two I lost, I don't know how I lost them. But the one that has remained, he lost all his leaves but the roots keep growing. I'm stumped. Like there is a single stock, no leaf, but it is not dead at all. The roots are growing out like mad inside of its uh, like a propagation. And so I am stumped every time I look at it because I just don't know what it's doing or how. (laughs) When it comes to kind of your philosophy around like uh, plants and planting, what do you teach or like give to people who are maybe amateurs or like newbies or who are maybe daunted by the prospect of, of taking up gardening? What kind of tips do you give to them? Um, I would give them the same tips I am attempting to give people of all shapes, sizes, colors, and backgrounds. We have got to spend more time thinking about how to foster relationships and how to foster environment where the relationships that we create are growing as a byproduct of simply living. And I think that the way we do that is by respecting the growing process 
and acknowledging the factors of growth. But it's far easier to say, hey, get a plant, water it, watch it grow. It takes time to say, hey, what kind of plant is it? What direction is your house facing? Do you know where north, south, east, and west is in your house? Have you considered where your southernmost window is? Like these are the kinds of things I think I would encourage people everywhere to think about as they foster relationships with their plants and each other, because I think there are correlations here that transcend each one of us and actually enter into the scope of all of life. And so you've got, you know, you're an author, you have the book, you've, uh, have your company, you have the successful social media following what's next on the horizon for you. What are you, what are you looking for or, or to do in the future? Oh, uh, there are so many things that I would like to do. You know, there are other books coming. There are children's books coming. There are different forms of media that we are already engaged in that are to come out. But I think in the future, what we are really looking forward to doing, um, more retreats. I I have a retreat going on this summer uh, at the Omega Institute in New York. And uh, one of the things I'm really looking forward to is cultivating more spaces and more relationships with people to help them engage with nature. So we've started a YouTube series about the plant temple I'm living in. I have 233 plants inside the house, and that is promoting peace, balance, and harmony. And I'm hoping to help create more spaces that are designed to foster peace, balance, and harmony in my fellow human being. Um, You know, I've been leaving people with this saying, every choice we make is a seed planted in the forest of our future. So let's be more deliberate with what seeds we plant today. That was Marcus Bridgewater speaking with reporter Daniel Carruth. Bridgewater will be at the University of the Ozarks tomorrow night at 7 p.m. in the Rogers Conference Center. The event is free and open to the public. Jerry Sloan's poetry is much like Ozark's weather. It can take any form, can surprise, and can simultaneously evoke comfort and challenge. His work is included in the new book, Wild Muse, Ozark's Nature Poetry, from Corner Post Press. He'll read from the book along with two other Arkansas poets at Pearl's Books Friday night. I recently asked him about observing and writing about nature. You can't live in the Ozarks, even in the city, without being aware of nature. You know, I do a lot of squirrel watching and bird watching on my hillside and the development's driving me crazy, you know, behind my house, which is one of the last forested areas in the city limits. And uh, I'm saddened to see that pass, you know, that, that happen, you know. But uh, sprawl is what we do best in Arkansas, so I guess we need to figure out how to live in smaller communities and make make the best use of the space that we have. Well, that's interesting you bring that up because that sadness or that um, poignancy about seeing forested areas not be as forested anymore sort of weaves through your poems that are collected in the book. I've got a thing with trees. I guess my daughter's the original tree hugger, you know. She's 
and bird rescue. She's been involved in that for 30 years. So I, most of what I've learned about nature has trickled down from being around her. You know, I still have bird crashes on my picture windows occasionally, mm -hmm. and every time she visits, she scolds me for not putting up hawk decals and owl decals and things like that. But the damn things cost like $7 each, you know, and I just can't. I'm too much of a tightwad to spend the money. Well, I'm thinking about uh, one poem here, The Fox. Yeah. And I w wonder if you could read that for us. So The Fox is, uh, I know rhyme and meter are not fashionable, but Miller Williams used to say, you know, those fashions are a pendulum that swing back and forth every 20 years or so. But in the digital universe that we're in now, I'm, I'm not sure that formula works anymore. But The Fox is four quatrains that uh, that have a meter and a rhyme scheme, A, B, B, A, C, D, D, C, et cetera. But a successful rhyme poem, you can read the whole thing and you won't be aware that it was rhyming until somebody points it out to you. So I think I pull that off occasionally. The fox. He crosses the road with his tail straight out, moving purposefully. Our headlights reveal a ghostly beard, a baby hair or a quail suspended from the set chin. It's hard to see why he disturbs our sleep within the suburbs or know how he'll survive when the last pasture is paved over with parking lots and manicured green lawns, the distinction blurred between who's prey and predator. All the wiles of kingdom come will not preserve you, brother fox, from that rude pestilence which knocks at both our doorways, waiting dumb. So I will admit, I'd only read this, you know, in my head to myself quietly, and I loved it. I didn't realize it rhymed until you just, <laughs> right before you said, and of course it does. So I passed the taste test. Right? <laughs> you did. Uh, and you wrote that in the 1980s, mid-80s probably. It strikes me reading your poems, and the poems from, you know, earlier volumes, you're always observing. And I wonder if when you see something, maybe Twin Coyotes, or maybe you're driving through a town in Missouri that has an odd name, are you always kind of reserving something in the back? Like, that might be the subject that I might put that in a poem? Uh, it has to register on some meaning scale for me. And then presumably, if I'm lucky, there'll be people out there that respond to the same situation. I don't think that I'm especially gifted uh, poetically, so I often try to find situations that I think might evoke similar response in a reader or listener or something, and sometimes I get lucky, I guess. But even on my short poems, which are usually 10 lines long, I, there has to be a transfer from my experience to the experience of the reader by the time they get to line 10. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I don't think the poem is successful. It, it has to trigger some memory in your background or your experience before the poem will register. So another poem that I love, actually it's the page before that, 169. I remember being in, in middle school and we would read about the explorers. <laughs> and all my other classmates thought it would just be great to be one of these folks who was on a mission to discover a new world. Right. And I always thought right. it sounded horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and... Why France sold us Louisiana just hammers home that I was right. Well, if you looked at the 
gloss over here at the, after my photograph. Uh, I've got a brief mm-hmm. explanation. Why France sold us Louisiana is largely history as slapstick based on the catalog of horrors from Chapter 2, LaSalle's Luck of Bob Lancaster's The Jungles of Arkansas, published by the University of Arkansas Press in 1989. So uh, I've even got some quotes in there yes, from, you from do. Lancaster's chapter. Do you mind reading that? Not at all. Why France sold us Louisiana. LaSalle led some wannabe colonists through the region we know as Texas. Most of their time spent hungry or lost. They, quote, lived on mud turtles and the occasional buffalo while feeding rattlesnakes to their hogs, unquote, and broke ground with rudimentary plows, hoping to grow something edible. Meanwhile, some died of venereal disease picked up in Hispaniola, and one man died from eating a prickly pear. The priest was gored by an irate buffalo. One poor soul was eaten by an alligator. Their leader veered between lucidity and psychotic episodes. His nephew and several others were eventually acts murdered in their sleep by a disgruntled faction. LaSalle himself ambushed after finding their bodies, the survivors escaping to either be enslaved or killed by the Indians. So I'm not sure if that qualifies as nature poetry, but... There's a lot of nature in it. <laughs> yeah, right. It's just not the, the, the sunset and roses part of nature that most people associate poetry with. Jerry Sloan is one of the poets included in the new collection, Wild Muse, Ozarks Nature Poetry, published by Corner Post Press. He'll read along with Arkansas poets Paulette Gurin and Wendy Carlisle at Pearl's Books in Fayetteville Friday night at 6. We'll hear another poem from Jerry's visit tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Richland Township. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Timothy Dennis, Daniel Carruth, Jacqueline Froelich, and Josie Lenora. Jacqueline gathered the information about the giant lacewing insect. Additional content today also originated at KUAR Public Radio in Little Rock. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Thanks to the Fayetteville Public Library for uh, allowing me to talk with Jerry Mitchell last night. Absolutely. The gathering of the groups. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for listening.